Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. This is the story perhaps of the summer, maybe even of the year. The U.S. government is going after Tornado Cash. Tornado Cash is a mixer for cryptocurrencies, specifically Ethereum. It enables you to move Ethereum from one wallet to another and break the transaction history between the two. It's a very important tool within crypto because it allows for privacy for almost any user, but also allows for privacy for big hacks and exchanges to uh, obfuscate what they're trying to do with their transactions, right? North Korea has used Tornado Cash in the past, specifically for the Ronin hack, where they laundered about $200 million worth of hacked ETH. And they've been pumping a lot of ETH through this uh, mechanism for the last few months. It's a huge deal now that a lot of people can't use this bridge because the OFAC sanctions will hurt anybody who's going against them uh, and is going to continue using this. Wendy, I want to throw this one up to you. This is, again, one of the bigger stories I think we're going to talk about this year. What does it mean for privacy and what does it mean for the average user who maybe even has funds on Tornado Cash? So this is a very, 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 very problematic thing. And I have to put my tinfoil hat on for a little bit and kind of talk about it. So we do know that there's illicit activity that happens. It happens with cash. It could happen with Bitcoin. It could happen when you're bartering. It happens no matter what. So I understand that they want to instill some sort of regulation to stop this bad behavior. But at the same time, crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever type of cryptocurrency, it was essentially created for privacy to keep people safe, to keep people private so they don't have to share all of their data in some aspect. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is that this could have been done because we're having all this drama with all these different crypto exchanges becoming insolvent, filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Maybe they're utilizing this to kind of instill some sort of new law to aid in those cases. But the bigger picture that I'm looking at is a CBDC. We know that we're supposed to have some sort of CBDC in the United States. And we were thought we were told that this was going to happen during the panorama to help facilitate payments to people. But what if they're putting this law out or this ban out to kind of manipulate what is happening with the CBDC to come up with some sort of protocol, some sort of creative way where they can potentially hide their tracks? Because we all know that the government, especially the United States of America, they don't spend money the way that they're supposed to. They keep printing money. They keep sending it places. 
Um, we keep introducing all these brand new tactics, et cetera. So maybe they're, they're doing this to, in fact, kind of cover their tracks and then release the CBDC. This is just speculation, just my opinion, but privacy is very, very important, especially to the average person. And a lot of people, especially on my TikTok, they're like, you know, this is good. We don't like hackers. It's for bad people. And I'm thinking to myself, what about survivors? What about somebody that is in a particular area or region that is getting oppressed, like somebody that goes to a nine to five job and they say, you know what? We don't like you. We're going to go ahead and put a freeze on your bank and take your funds. So there's a lot of different arguments for and against this. But at the same time, I'm looking at the bigger picture and it's just not sitting right with me. You know, I wonder how blacklisting a service for U.S. citizens is going to stop North Korean hackers from using a product. So to me, this doesn't sound like a national security play, which is mentioned time and time again in the announcement. Wendy, Will, I completely agree with you. It sounds like a play against privacy. And Wendy, I just want to take what you were saying even further. I think a lot of people see this and they say, this is good. We need to stop the criminals. We need to stop the hackers because we don't want uh, platforms and people to lose money to the tune of $600 million. But when we think about privacy, I challenge people to think outside of like the very safe bubble that a lot of us live in and, and think about, I think something that we could all relate to in the United States is think about if you live in a red state and you need access to an abortion, somewhere along that journey, you might want a transaction you make to be private. And this is something that can enable it. So this is just a huge knock against privacy and really sad story to start the day off on. Zach, what did you think? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the privacy conversation ramp up, right? The privacy conversation is no longer just about privacy coins. It's about zero knowledge proofs, right? Cryptographic technology that lets you verify what's in a transaction without knowing the contents of that transaction. Stuff like that that has been talked about in terms of scaling and making these networks support more transactions. Now I think the conversation is going to shift toward okay, those are some privacy features that we can do in a compliant manner that will foster mainstream adoption so that the world doesn't have to know that I'm spending 10 bucks on, I don't know, like porn or something, right? So the idea here is that there should be a right to privacy online, just as there is a right to privacy in other aspects of our lives. And yet, I think we're seeing the increasing surveillance of the financial system. And that has privacy advocates worried. This is something that I think you know, Naomi Rockwell, Ben Powers would be harping on pretty loudly right now that there should be a right to financial privacy as it relates to online commerce, especially in peer-to-peer -peer internet commerce. That's what crypto is all about. So the idea that this is now increasingly under attack is a little bit scary to folks. Flip side, like Tornado has laundered a lot of shady funds in the past. So like it puts them square in the crosshairs. They're the ones who are going to be the canary in this coal mine. But the bigger picture I think is really important. And it is something that People are going to get loud about in terms of thinking how to work these issues out so that the prospect of online native currency can exist in a way that is private by default, but not criminally so. Privacy is not a crime. And I think that's worth repeating here as OFAC takes a very broad handed approach to cracking down on some of these tools. Will, your thoughts? Honestly, we could do the whole show on just this one topic because there's so many threads to pull on. The one I want to zero in on Right now, though, is the conversation between cryptocurrencies and privacy coins. A lot of people refer to cryptocurrencies and using them for just basic transactions like Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they don't have a lot of those privacy builds into them, right? You can send a Bitcoin transaction, but you can basically find most of the information about it pretty easily. And if you really know how to do some nice sleuthing, you can find the IP addresses and therefore the physical locations that people who sent that money on Bitcoin or Ethereum. So that's why Bitcoin and Ethereum have turned to different transaction mechanisms using dApps or applications like blenders and mixers 
in order to send Bitcoin privately, or they use wallets like Samurai or Wasabi to send Bitcoin privately. But a lot of these things have problems, right? And so a lot of people saw this coming alongside, and that's why they invented privacy coins like Monero or Zcash. And I think when you look at this picture and you're seeing these applications that are used for laundering or used for mixing or used just for basic privacy being censored, then the reality of the point of a privacy coin actually becomes tangible. And all those crazy people out there who are saying that privacy coins mattered for years, they're slowly becoming vindicated more and more. Flip side, however, is what if privacy coins didn't really get out into mainstream adoption and then they get stifled and uh, squelched in the bed as well. Zach, back to you. Yeah, it is pretty remarkable just to think that this is the blacklisting of a tool, not a particular bad actor, right? This is a the blacklisting of an open source software tool. So this is sort of a new frontier in how uh, U.S. regulators are approaching some of these things. I mean, they're couching it in the terms of, okay, North Korea used this to like launder a bunch of funds. Okay, we're going to take action against it. But typically, these are sanctioned individuals, right? They're someone who commits a bad action that is meant to be dissuaded from occurring again. And those are the people who end up on these lists. But this is actually just like a tool, right? Like a neutral technology that is, can be used any number of ways from someone who, you know, wants to send 20 bucks to their friend, you know, for the beer that they just bought or, you know, wants to, again, launder funds after hacking a major protocol in the crypto space at the nation state level. So it is odd that I think that this, this open source code is now the target of this enforcement action rather than any particular individual users who may have used it to do bad stuff. So that to me is interesting. And I think a lot of people are really uh, homing in on that particular distinction here in this action as something that is odd, new, and potentially has quite big ramifications. But Wendy, over to you. I just want to say, I mean, I feel like it's easier for the government to just shut it all down, just to say, no, you can't do this instead of actually understanding how this works and maybe coming in and saying, hey, you know what? You can use this feature, this feature, and this feature, but not this feature. And we know that they're tracking things anyways on the blockchain. So it's very problematic, the fact that they just stepped in and they just completely says, no, you can't use it. And kind of back to Jen's point, how is this going to impact people that are doing bad things outside of the United States? That doesn't make any sense to me any way, shape or form. People outside of the United States of America can still do stuff very, very easily. So basically what it's doing, it's just kind of saying, you're in trouble for what your big brother is doing over here. We're taking away your privileges. But people are going to get creative. They're going to find other ways to kind of work around this, whether it be privacy coins, whether it be coming up with a brand new protocol, et cetera. So it's just a very, very problematic, oppressive behavior, in my personal opinion. Tuesday's top story. All right. We're going to talk about Reddit now. So Reddit has an FTX pay integration, which will support users onboarding to community points. The integration will allow users to purchase Ether from supported Reddit apps, which they can then use to pay network fees for community points transactions on chain. So if you don't know what community points are, it's a reputation program that allows users to earn points by contributing quality posts and comments. Since the points live on the blockchain they and not on Reddit's platform, they can be transferred to anywhere you go online. So community points is Reddit's, I guess, proof point as to an online decentralized reputation system. And now FTX Pay is integrating a way for people who partake in this program to purchase Ether. Wendy, I'm going to kick this down to you. I know this is a very targeted story, but I thought this would be an interesting time to talk about reputation points. We talk about NFTs so often in building communities, but these reputation points are something that I think a lot of social people who are building in the social media space are thinking around. 
and I wanted to get your opinion on these. So I'm actually reading the story and I don't, and there's a couple, there's actually things that are not related to your question <laughs> that I wanted to bring up, but cause I don't use Reddit, read it, Reddit, Reddit. I don't really use it too much. It's Reddit. It just feels like Reddit. <laughs> you know what? I don't really utilize it too much, but I think it is important that a big platform like this is utilizing, you know, cryptocurrency. But when I'm reading the article and social points are cool too, passive income. Yay. But when I'm reading the article, I thought it was pretty interesting because it says launched in 2022, the blockchain based community point system awards users based on quality of their posts. Community points shifted to the Arbitrum Nova blockchain in 2021, when originally I thought it was with Ethereum that they would utilize. So like strictly Ethereum. So I thought that that was a very interesting switch. And the fact that it's with FTX Pay, I would have assumed that it would have been Solana. I think this project has been a long time coming, and it also doesn't seem like it's really finalized yet. So Reddit has been talking about working with a blockchain solution for its community points for literally years. We've seen this headline sort of rolled out in piecemeal fashion a few separate times where they've launched or they're about to launch or they're launching some sort of community project. There is at one point, even a roll-up competition where they're saying like we can't scale on Ethereum, so let's find a roll-up solution that enables us to launch community points on top of it. Nothing has really happened to date, and this one doesn't seem to be too much of a change. Otherwise, also, we're looking at this, just seems like FTX is enabled to work with Reddit here, but that doesn't really seem to say like much more about where this community points project is going to go. The issue with the community points project to date is that Ethereum cannot handle the amount of transactions that needs to scale with Reddit, right? Because there's a million people liking a million posts with a million comments every single second on Reddit. How can a blockchain keep up with that? That's not what blockchain is built for. Blockchains are really meant for moving money around, maybe a little other data, but nothing like that intense. Typically, you're going to use some like very boring single server that can handle all this. But Reddit wants to really move into this Web3 thing, right? Like, that's the whole point. Alex Ohanian is the co-founder of, of Reddit, and he is a very well-known Web3 VC at this point and is very involved with a lot of NFT scene. And so he's made a big point of pushing Reddit in this direction. But to date, the tech is just not there, right? There hasn't really been a social media Web3 project that has really taken off in a sense that it's using Web3 as the back end. That might happen in the future, but right now, the best project we've seen to date probably with that would be Reddit. And this headline doesn't give me a lot of optimism that it's moved very far. Jen, back over to you. Yeah, I have a question for both of you. Will, you asked me the other day what I thought about the Instagram NFT integration. And now we're talking about, you know, blockchain, where it is. We can't actually support this next billion users that we always talk about bringing into the space. Is it just too early to talk about bringing on these mass audiences that are on Web2 social platforms? Is it just too early? Are we going to see these piecemeal projects like this kind of test some things out, but like not really focus on bringing a, a big audience. Um, maybe I don't even know. I can't even give a timeline, but not even focus on it for now. Yeah, I'll give a quick answer and then hand over to okay. Wendy. I, I think that there's some features you get like censorship resistance, right? So imagine like a Twitter account, you have a running and then all of a sudden Twitter doesn't like something you say, they delete your account, you lose all your tweets. There's solutions for that nowadays with some Web3 products. And there have been actually for quite a while if you do like local backups. But even blockchains like Arweave, things like that, allow you to do some sort of backup yourself that other people are able to access. So that's great. But in terms of like lots of people using Web3 tech, sending microtransaction, microchips, things like that, not really there yet. I think we're about five years away or so. Wendy, to you. 
I actually like that you said five years away because I was going to say five to 10 years away. And I know that sounds kind of crazy. Yeah, people forget that everything in crypto is technically still in beta for the most part. Like, obviously, there are some exchanges that are built out a little bit more, but they don't really run on blockchain. So we're talking about Web3, we're talking about crypto. Everything is still kind of in production. Like, I don't know about you, but the way that I gauge projects is if they've survived a bear market. If they've been able to survive a bear market, I'm more likely to feel a little bit more confident in my investing. And I'll note that in my investing in the trading journal under my fundamental analysis. But we're still, we still have a really, 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 really long way to go. And on top of it, it seems that we are in a battle with the governments regarding what's a security, what isn't a security. So it's going to be really complicated for the Reddits and Instagram and the Facebook and the Met, like all of these different social media platforms to really integrate these Web3 technologies because we don't know if they're securities or not. And if they integrate these technologies and then the SEC comes out and says, oh, this is a security because X, Y, and Z, it could be detrimental to their entire business operation that was very successful without the Web3 and cryptocurrency blockchain technology. Wednesday's top story. Today is another inflation day, and this time, don't worry, the economist still got it wrong, but in a nicely novel change, the news is better than expected rather than worse. According to the Consumer Price Index numbers released this morning, the official rate at which prices are growing slowed in July by more than economists had forecast, reflecting in large part lower energy prices, particularly a significant drop in gasoline. Those numbers, while still at decades high levels, allow traders betting that the U.S. Central Bank has done its worst to gain some confidence in that bet. And with U.S. midterm elections coming up fast, that could provide a better narrative for the embattled Biden administration should the Jerome Pedled uh, institution ease off a little bit. Now, as always, I like to show the latest chart from shadowstats.com where economist John Williams tracks various forms of government statistics using the same methodologies they were calculated with around 1980. So let's show that chart now. That's about the last time that we had such high levels of inflation. So now today we're talking about levels that are just under 9%. But if we take a look at that chart, the red line shows the current way that inflation is measured, while the blue line shows that same data viewed through an apples to apples comparison to how it was measured back in the 1980. As you can see there, uh, even with today's new data coming in lower, we're still at historically high levels with the rate above 15%, were it not for those methodology changes. So this is good news, but We've actually seen dips like this before. So it will take more than one report to really get some confidence that inflation is, in fact, on its way down. As it stands right now, though, it is driving a market narrative that I think that we're seeing significantly across the crypto sector. Uh, will, I'll throw this to you first. What do you think here? Yeah, I mean, it's good news, right? But only marginally good news. We're still at 8.5%. That really hasn't changed year over year. and That's not great. Uh, but it's nice to see that we're peaking, perhaps, and that energy prices are a key contributor there. And we've, I think most people have seen the price of the pump going down over the last few weeks to months, which is a huge bonus, right? I think within crypto and within Bitcoin, we do get a little cynical and we keep cheering for things to get worse because we want our thesis to play out where Bitcoin is adopted and crypto continues to be adopted. But that's not what we should really want, right? We should want everything to get a little better. We should want inflation to go down. We should want things to work as normal. Uh, that's kind of the interesting case for Bitcoin, right? We wouldn't need Bitcoin really if the dollar was used correctly and if there was actually some steady hands at the wheel. But we don't have a situation. We have 8.5% inflation and we have a government that continues to spend money and cause inflation to go up. And we continue to have like these other macro factors in play, right? Like the Russo-Ukrainian war, energy issues, 
uh, inability to create new oil reserves or new oil flows for the energy market. Uh, the one thing I do want to know is like core CPI didn't really change, right? And so that tells you that things are pretty steady there. And so for the average uh, American, life is not necessarily getting much better. Uh, going into the fall months, this really matters because we have midterms. Now for crypto itself, Bitcoin, Ethereum, we saw that they both pumped a little bit on this. Bitcoin broke above 24K for the fourth time in about the last 30 days. Ethereum is also up about 9% on the day. At this point, it's really difficult to say like how much they are trading based on inflation. Uh, maybe there's an argument that Bitcoin is trading the most on inflation it ever has. Uh, I think in the past, we've really just seen Bitcoin trade based on uh, perception and based on people's interest in cryptocurrency, expecting like the money to keep going up over time. Uh, but right now, it's basically hovering around wherever we see the CPI print. Bitcoin sort of moves with it and therefore the rest of the crypto market. At the same time, though, it's really hard to say, right? Because breaking above 24K for the fourth time in the last 30 days or so, it's hard to say there's a correlation there. Jen, I'll throw it down to you. Yeah, I have a question, Adam, for you to maybe just break this down further. So we're saying that this is marginally better news, but there are still people who are struggling to afford the rising interest rates when it comes to their mortgage. There are still people who are struggling to you know, buy groceries, to feed their families. What does this news mean for those people? Uh, this news means that things are getting worse at a slightly slower pace than they were before. When you're talking about <laughs> consumer price index numbers, I mean, seriously, you're talking about the rate at which prices are increasing. Uh, and, and really, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the rate at which they are growing. So this is a slight improvement in that things didn't get worse, like things are getting worse, but they're not getting worse faster than they were last month, which has been the case for the last 18 months, or actually 16 months. This broke a 16-month uh, month over month growth cycle in all of that. So it's not a thing that's going to help anybody, but as uh, sort of a comma in the moment that we're in right now, right? Where people are really looking at the, what the Federal Reserve is going to do, it matters there because the Federal Reserve is really all that matters. And Will, you were saying that Bitcoin is tracking inflation. I would disagree with that. Bitcoin is tracking the Fed. Bitcoin is tracking at what point the Fed eases off on the rate hikes and returns to its supportive monetary policy. Now, my core thesis around this, since the Fed started hiking earlier this year, was that we would see the end of this uh, around the end of August. Because at that point, the idea that you're going to increase interest rates and actually push the U.S. economy into a recession is completely toxic sort of to the ruling class. So there's a, a big kind of political angle that comes into play here that is hard to deny. So I think that this report is actually the best possible thing that Jerome Powell could have possibly hoped for because it allows him to have a plausible reason to say, okay, it's working. We can do less of this, even though really the reasons why they'll, they'll do less of it, this is not going to tame inflation. But the excuse gives them the pretense to then pay attention to the political considerations that I think really are the ones that trump most everything else here. <laughs> Aren't I cheery this morning? Yeah, I was going to say, Adam, very. every time you come on this show, it's just this cheeriest start to our days. Well, to be fair, I think Adam always... <laughs> Like it lands on the inflation conversation, right? I feel like consistently when you're on, it's like the CPI print comes out that week. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how it's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me say one other thing about your comment. You were saying that, you know, like that a lot of people in Bitcoin kind of cheer this type of thing. And certainly I come off at that. This is not cheering for the destruction. This is cheering for the inability to hide the destruction of the money that has been occurring for basically all of our lives on this show here, which has typically been easy to hide, relatively speaking but is now increasingly difficult to hide. So what I love and what makes me very happy is when reality cannot be masked. 
And this is not a true form of reality, but it is closer than we typically get in these types of political cycles. And so as a result of that, I like that because to the extent that these problems actually are exposed and talked about and discussed, they actually get solved. But that's not really the way that the system works today. Today, you're not allowed to talk about these things. And to the extent that you are, again, look at mainstream economists, right? They are professionally wrong for a living because what they really do is they support the narrative. Anybody who's a real economist who's actually looking at the numbers and getting this stuff right, they're dealing for private clients, right? Like, because that's valuable information. But public economists serve a narrative too. And it's very important to some people. It's just not useful to us in the markets today. I totally agree with you. Like uh, economists, especially in the Fed, are politicians at a certain point and they are, are responsible to the administration. That's why the Biden administration got these numbers first, right? And they rolled them out this morning. Thursday's top story. And the latest is big news with Ethereum this morning. They pulled off their final dress rehearsal ahead of the merge and the price has gone soaring. So I think we hit our all-time high in the past two months. Will, tell us about what is going on. Yeah, totally. For a second, I thought you were going to say that they actually did the merge. I was like, no, not yet. But so close, we actually got... Yeah, I know. We got a nice date. (laughs) Yeah, we got a date from them finally, a terminal difficulty. So essentially what this means is like at a certain point in the future at a block height, Ethereum will change from proof of work, proof of stake. It's a two-part upgrade. We found out this morning what the date is going to be. It's going to be early September. First day, I think, is the 11th. And the second date is the 14th or 15th. And this depends on a few things, including uh, hash rate, other people involved on the network, and if there's any sort of client changes at the last second. But it looks like we have a date for the merge, which I said yesterday, the tornado cash news might have been the biggest thing in crypto, but this actually might be the biggest thing in crypto this year. This is a huge transition. Adam, I'll throw it to you really quickly. A note, Ether is really close to uh, $2,000. So I think the market's rewarding them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of confidence that we're seeing back in markets today. Um, you know, And we have really been seeing it since kind of last month as we started to see the news about the merge uh, solidify. Let's call it that. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, As somebody who's been in the space for a long time, the sort of talk and the plan towards this day that seems like it's now set for mid-September, you know, it's been a long time coming. It's been much delayed. There's been a lot of questions about whether it would really ever happen because there were just some hard problems in there that had to be solved. And the thing about hard problems when you're talking about technology, and especially cryptocurrency, uh, is you can predict that there is a solution for it, but it's really hard to predict that it's going to happen next month or next year or 15 years from now or whatever. So when you're talking about, uh, you know, what's going on with Ethereum right now, really the context here is far broader than that main chain. It is, in fact, very, very important for the entire crypto sector. We have never seen a transition for a major chain that has been in operation, much less the most popular one in operation, uh, that has made a transition like this. Uh, Changing something like the proof-of-work consensus algorithm to the proof-of-stake consensus algorithm this is very much like going in, you know, and like ripping all the guts out of an airplane while you are actually flying the thing. And then, you know, trying to make that transition in such a way so that nobody gets hurt and there are no problems. It's possible. It's really, really difficult. Uh, and this is still not a sure thing, too. It's worth noting that although they have done a number of test nets, just the size of the Ethereum blockchain and just the level of complexity that's implicit with this type of change means that it's still very possible that something could go wrong. Right now, everything's looking pretty good. And I got to say, if they pull this off, it's going to be probably the most significant thing that we've seen in cryptocurrency, perhaps ever, really. You know, outside of the actual creation of the Bitcoin blockchain and sort of the concept behind it, this is a really, really big deal. So I'm I'm excited to see how it plays out. 
Not sure crypto prices are out of the woods yet, though. So I'm watching that one. I'm a little bit curious. What do you think, Jen? Well, I want to take a vote. I want to know, do you guys think that this is going to happen on the date outlined in September? Is the merge actually going to happen? Is it finally here? It's here. It's time to yes? celebrate. Okay, you who saw says the yes? Both of you say yes. Well, so so I, I have a slightly, <laughs> uh, I have a wonk answer here. My wonk answer is that, yes, I think it'll probably happen, but I also think that it probably won't happen on the exact date that they're saying. What they gave us is a block height, which means that it's, the, you know, at a certain block number, which is, you know, every, I believe, eight seconds, a block is approved on the Ethereum blockchain, or maybe it's lower than that. It is lower than that. Anyways, it doesn't matter. The point just is, is that these are variable things. There's variance in it. And so if blocks go faster, then we'll see it show up a little bit sooner. If blocks go slower, we'll see it show up a little bit later. Uh, but that's kind of the thing is whenever you're talking about these dates in block height, they tend to move around by 24 hours, 48 hours, something like that. We're supposed to move to a different topic, but I have to do a little yeah. fact check. It's actually not block height for this go around. And this comes off of our conversation, I think yesterday, maybe it was on the show, maybe it was somewhere else I was talking about this. But the fact that they're trying to prevent any sort of miners nefariously attacking the new chain. So they're using a terminal difficulty, which basically means that like when the Ethereum network hits a difficulty height with enough hash rate on the network, then the transition will automatically happen. And there's even like a manual function in this apparently so that they're able to go through the merge without any miners taking over. Adam, what you're talking about there, yeah, that's like the typical way they do it, right? That's what they've done it for all transitions in the past. But they're worried that miners might start to slow down the network and uh, block height would be a way of slowing down the network. So they're not going to do it. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Coindesk has a new event. It's called Ideas, the Investing in Digital Assets and Enterprises Summit. It facilitates capital flow and market growth by connecting the digital economy with traditional finance. Join us for a 360 investment experience where you can source, invest, and secure the next big deal in digital assets, all in one place. Use code HASH20 for 20% off a general pass. Register today at coinest.com forward slash ideas. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.